I'm always pleased to introduce Jonathan Gold. Jonathan Gold is, for now, the LA Weekly's restaurant critic. <laughs> Host of KCRW's Good Food on the Road and the author of Counterintelligence, Where to Eat in the Real Los Angeles. He was awarded the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Criticism and has also received multiple James Beard Awards since he started writing about food in 1984. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Jonathan Gold. Thank you. I think, no, I think that's the laundry list there. Right? Uh, no, no, this, no this, is the, that's the, the this, would, this would be the introduction. Uh, this, this, is, this, of course, is the uh, splendid Adam Gopnik, uh, star of stage and screen. He has written for The New Yorker since 1986. He was the magazine's art critic from 1987 to 1995 before becoming their Paris Journal columnist. He has won the National Magazine Award for Essays and for Criticism three times, as well as the George Polk Award for Magazine Reporting. His books include From Paris to the Moon, Through the Children's Gate, and most recently, The Table Comes First, Family, France, and The Meaning of Food. Uh, available for purchase outside. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> Thank you. And we are... Here to answer the question, uh, foodies, what, if anything, are they good for? <laughs> uh, what are they good for? Uh, you know, I'm always, it's funny, uh, in doing this book and in writing generally, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I even, in a sardonic, a semi-ironic way, I always avoid the word foodies. Because it's one of those loaded terms, like yuppies, or if you go back long enough, like women's libbers. You're too young to remember this in, right. the, in the audience, but if someone said, well, how, are you a woman's libber? It meant it was immediately disparaging to the thing that it was uh, describing, and it's no longer in, uh, around. It, I think that my own take on it is that, um, I'll answer in, a, in a, my own first sure. going in a slightly circuitous way. I was up at the Getty this morning talking about drawing a bit. So a wonderful new picture, new acquisition of the Getty by a painter, a French painter from the early 19th mm -hmm. century called Boyi. And what it shows is, uh, it's called the Turkish Garden, and it shows people, families, kids, uh, parents, street people, lined up outside waiting to get into a pleasure garden right. in Paris, on, in the Marais, mm -hmm. in 1812, in 1812, right at the height of the Napoleonic Wars. And what this picture is really showing is the alternative to militarism, that is, that was growing up in Paris at the same time. That is this world of uh, restaurants and pleasures and so on that were going on. And if you read, and it's sort of one of the points, the historic points I wanted to make in this book, is uh, if you read Brillat Savarin's Gastronomy of, uh, of Physiology of Taste, which is sort of the first great food book. And when people write about it, they often treat it as though it's sort of the smiley aphorisms of a doddering old man who's just sort of putting together a lifetime's food experience. But if you actually read the book, you see it's the first great manifesto it's an anti-militarist book in favor of soft power. Because what uh, Briat is saying in that book is, look, we lost the battle, that is, we lost the Napoleonic battles, and they were horrible battles anyway, but we, France, won the war. Because when the Allies poured in here, the Germans and the English poured in here in 1815, we, uh, we dominated them. They became our cultural slaves because we showed them that we had invented this new world of restaurants, a new invention of all kinds of pleasures, particularly gastronomic pleasures, food pleasures, sexual ones as well, but that's, a, that's another book, um, uh, that are, were more important. So the whole point of the physiology of taste is to say, you know what, we have something in France that's new, that's relatively new, and that is this whole world of gastronomy that's incredibly potent, that can take barbar barbarians like Germans uh, and Englishmen <laughs> and civilize them by its very presence. So, in that sense, it seems to me, the, in, the, in as much as the idea that uh, pleasure is as important as power, that we can define ourselves as much through our pleasures and by our pleasures as through inflicting pain on other people, to the degree that foodieism in America reflects that belief in some way, then I think it's a very good thing. Very good. But, um, but when you read Brias Severin and you read the, uh, the, the early food books from France, one of the things that, that also strikes you is that 
there are rules, and there are examples, and there are counterexamples, and there are regimens which must be followed and regimens mm-hmm. must, which must not be followed. And so your idea of, of using uh, Gormandism or Foodism as a means of conquering, of subjugation, mm-hmm. is actually a really good one. I mean, French have always been spectacular at bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one way of seeing, you know, and it's one way of seeing what happened in French cooking is it was a kind of bureaucratized, or at very least, uh, John Stuart Mill says someplace that the French natural mania is for systematization. And French cooking in that way was a highly systematized thing in a way that, say, Italian cooking wasn't in, at right. all and still is not, really. It's regionalized, but it's not systematized in that mm. top-down way. I had a friend, a, a wonderful uh, literary critic now long gone, uh, and student of comparative literature named Eugenio Donato, who was my mentor in all things food. He was a remarkable man. He came from, a, a born in Egypt to, if I remember correctly, an Italian mother and an Armenian father, educated in France and spent most of his life in the United States. He spoke five languages perfectly, all with a heavy accent, which <laughs> is so he was a, like a Penin, you know, a total uh, displaced person. Wherever he was, he was displaced, which is probably a healthy way to live. Anyway, he used to say that you know, the, the great moment in French history was the classification of, of Bordeaux in 1855 mm-hmm. because it was the moment when the systematizing genius of Paris took over the entire country. There wasn't an ounce of, of land, at least in Bordeaux, that wasn't being graded, notated, and made part of uh, uh, an overarching idea. So I think there's, there's, there's some truth in that. The only thing I'd say is, and I always feel this way reading Briat and, and his great contemporary Grimaud and so on, is that and it's, it's a sort of general intuition I have about uh, France, is that there is a st- ironic, tongue-in-cheek aspect to a lot of the seeming systematization. You're not meant to take it entirely seriously. So that Briat Savarin, for instance, has lots of things where he grades sensations along a straight uh, right. thing. And Americans take that very seriously, because we really believe in those kinds of grades. That's where... Robert Parker emerges from, the American cult of numbers. There is one true number that you can give to every California cab, and we will find it, and we will assign that one true number to it. It's very much like Bill James with baseball, that you can understand, uh, you can understand a complicated phenomenon if you break it down into its numerical and statistical basis. And my feeling always is, is that there's an element of playfulness about that in Briat, and more generally in, in French culture, which is easy for Americans to miss. That is, when you're you know, the, the rules, the complicated rules of French eating, you must have this wine with this, with this dish. You can only have whatever, ikem with foie gras, whatever. Yeah. You never meant, I've never seen anyone actually put those rules into practice who considers themselves a great eater in France. They're more a declaration, at least in my experience, more a declaration of intent than they are a commitment to a particular kind of performance. But, but, but that's where the... Um the, I think the definitive break of uh, foodism between mere sort of gourmandism mm-hmm. uh, takes place in the 1980s where, it, where foodies become actually almost a different species from the people who are you know, obsessed with wine. So that when you are having these you know, elaborate um, tasting meals at you know, places like Michel Garrard or mm-hmm. um, that if you were going to follow the rules, you would be quite drunk by the end of the yeah. evening because there's, right. there's just no way you're going to have right. each wine match everything else. So the, the foodie, be, foodie default became to essentially drink a, a decent Beaujolais or a Chinon that would carry Cover everything, through the right. entire meal. And the idea of... Uh, Caring about the wine that you drink yeah. became a sign that your priorities were in the wrong place. Right. Of an imperfect commitment to the cult. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that I think that's true. And it's a, actually when the, the one time I ever got to eat at uh, uh, Ferran Adria's El Bulli, mm-hmm. and I asked him, "What should we drink through this thing?" Because they have elaborate pairings, and mm-hmm. I can't drink that much wine. I'm one of those people. One of my many <coughs> total inadequacies as a food writer is is that I can't. I can't, I've never confessed this in public, I can't spit into a common spittoon. <laughs> I find that really, it's like the, it's like the eight-year-old in me. I find it really revolting to be spitting 
along with lots of other middle-aged guys into one common spittoon, because then you have all the spit wine in this kind of treasure vase thing, too. So whenever I go to a wine tasting, it's not that often, I just keep on drinking, you know, and then stagger out at the end of it. And so I'm not much, I have a weak head for wine. So I said to Audrey, what should you drink with this thing? He said, oh, just drink cava, you know, just drink the right. local... Uh, Spanish sparkling wine, the local thing, which I love and was very good. But it, it, just to confirm your point, it was a way of sort of annihilating the idea of the wine in the meal rather than, uh, rather than bringing it forward. Yeah, that's uh, the, the sort of um, de-emphasis on wine, I think, is actually rather important at, I don't know what you'd call the new kind of restaurants, the sort of like post-Adriar restaurants. Uh, where there are an astonishing number of courses and where the foodstuffs often defy, I mean, proudly defy any matching with any um, grape at all. Do they? I've never been to Noma. You know, this is the very yeah. famous place now in Copenhagen that was voted the best restaurant in the world. Do they, what do they serve? Like Danish wine or? Uh, they... There is a Danish wine on the list. Uh -huh. They're very proud of having having it. Um, that if I, I, I've actually been to conferences on these things, global warming is such that it they is. can actually ripen Chardonnay in Denmark now, which right. is not necessarily <laughs> a good. Thing. Good, not a good thing. No. <laughs> well, this is true. You know, I'm I'm talking about winter scenes tomorrow night because I'm Canadian mm -hmm. by origin, and when you go to uh, a classy Toronto restaurant, mm -hmm. now you get Canadian wines, which was a sort of a joke concept when I was growing up in Canada, the idea of Canadian wines. There's some quite good ones now. There's some not, there's Eng but speaking of global warming, there's English champagne now. Yeah. You know? I mean, the, I mean as you know, the, uh, the, the, the sort of, uh, the, the chalky soil, the marl that's, that's the basis of the soil in champagne also exists in England, you know, south of England, thus the, you know, White Cliffs of Dover, etc. And... All the big wine houses are buying up, you know, vast tracts of land in the south of England because they think that's the future. They think that actually champagne, if global warming keeps going as curtain pace, it will be too warm to actually make champagne with the it's characteristics champagne. you like. Oh, that's, some, that's hideously depressing and strange. It also, you know, in a weird way, it would have disabled the growth of free market philosophies. Maybe that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you read Adam Smith in the original... One of the things that happens is he's trying to explain to an audience of sort of English gentlemen mm -hmm. why free trade is a good idea. And he clearly, when he's writing, he has a hard time explaining. He talks about pins. He talks about lots of things. Why it is that it's perfectly good, perfectly healthy for a country to send its money out to bring goods in. Because at the time, people said, mm -hmm. oh, that's a terrible thing. That's just encouraging luxury and you're listening. But as soon as he says, look, if you didn't believe that, we wouldn't import French wine all the time. And you can almost feel 200 years later, everybody nodding, oh, that's right, exactly, right? We couldn't have French wine if we didn't send our money to them and get their wine back. So that was his sort of his killer app, was the, <laughs> the, the wine business for Adam Smith, was wine importation. So, so now if the British are going to be autonomous in wine, uh, <laughs> we will truly be in a great deal of difficulty if you're trying to justify... Uh, the practice of free trade. I didn't know that. That's a terrifying thought. Yeah, if we, if we ever get to the point where uh, the, the, the Brits can um, actually ripen Cabernet, we're in really big I trouble. I know, that's right. <laughs> we're in double trouble. We're in trouble because it will mean that the world will be burning to a cinder all around mm -hmm. us. And doubly because <laughs> not only will we have to put up with British uh, wine snobs, we'll have to put up with British wine snobs who own their own vineyards in their backyards. <laughs> and it'll be, the world will be a darker place. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. It's bad enough when they own them in Bordeaux. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You were mentioning in your book something I hadn't thought that much about before, but that uh, at a certain point in, um, in French history, the table wines were almost always sweet, that the, yep. the move towards uh, dry wines, specifically towards Bordeaux, happened almost exclusively because of the uh, influence of the English. Yeah, no, in fact, it's even the cult, there was a good piece in one of the gastronomic journals a while ago about the cult of old wine, that this was mm -hmm. also a very British taste, much more than it was a French taste in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. It was people who made a fetish of importing wine and cellaring it, developed the cult of old wine. And it's not something you find typically in, uh, Briat, for instance, at Grimaud, talk, make very little about uh, old wines, about mm -hmm. vintages. It's not, it's not a terribly important 
concept for them, but it starts appearing in the uh, in, in, in British stuff later. And yeah, no, it's one of the startling things, and it leads, you know, it opens the door to the whole question of tastes and how they change, is that, you're, is that that weird thing that happens when you're reading old food writing of any kind, but particularly when right. you're reading the early 19th century French stuff, because you're sort of walking along saying, oh, I would like to try that, that sounds very good, oh, mm -hmm. they're doing a kind of bouillabaisse, that sounds great, and they're doing this, and then they're doing um, uh, boiled salmon, that's boiled for three hours, and you wonder, <laughs> and they're serving it with a sweet Alsatian wine, and you say, that doesn't sound so good, right? <laughs> and then that's the next thing that they're producing. So, <clears throat> but a lot of, of sweet wine. I mean, that's one of the things that you, one of the, the themes, and not themes exactly, but one of the, the uh, recurrent uh, uh, observations in the book is how much our lives are structured by those three basic uh, modern drugs, uh, alcohol, caffeine, and sugar. Those are the three drugs that keep us going through the day. And the whole notion that you would have them in, a, in an orderly way, you know, you'd begin every meal with wine and go through wine, mm -hmm. revive yourself with caffeine and sugar. The whole idea that sugar would be located at the end of the meal rather than distributed evenly throughout the meal, it's a very modern idea in lots of ways. We take it for granted now that you have dessert last, but it, uh, there's that wonderful food historian, Flandrin, who shows that with almost kind of comical detail how the distribution of sugar passes from the 17th century when sugar is sweet tastes are evenly distributed throughout the meal to now when we have very little, few sweet tastes. More and more now, but on the whole, not. And then, boom, we all have half a pound of sugar at the end of the <laughs> meal. Yeah, and of course, in, in a lot of other cultures around the world, there's absolutely no difference between a sweet course and a savory course. Savory, there, yeah. there will be no order for them That's at right. all. That's yeah, right. You know, I, I, when my one time at El Bulli, I asked, I was granted an audience. You don't get an interview with yeah. Ferran Adria. You're granted an audience with Ferran Adria, and you're ushered in by one of the Oompa Loompas who work at <laughs> El Bulli to the presence yeah. of, of the master. And I said to him, with, a, I'm afraid, a terribly American kind of earnestness. Maybe it was Canadian kind of earnestness. Canadians aren't earnest in quite that way. Um, Canadians are sincere, but mm -hmm. Americans are earnest. And anyway, I said to him, uh, do you believe, maestro, that the line between sweet and savory is beginning to break down in contemporary cuisine? And he turned on me with a look of glee in his eye, and he said, uh, I cannot believe that an American is asking me this. You, whose national meal is a cheeseburger with ketchup and a Coke. <laughs> Which was a good answer. <laughs> Reasonable answer. Yeah, and of course, at Adria, the, the, the sweet courses were all, appeared almost randomly throughout the meal. You never, you never knew when you were going to see a sweet and when you weren't. Mm. And if you had the dish in front of you, you actually weren't quite sure whether that thing that looked like caramel was in fact caramel or whether it was going to be something that he did with olive oil in order to make it... Essence of tallow wax or something yes. that had been <laughs> spread out on it. But you were saying, when we were in the, in the dressing room, so to speak, you were saying, you were being critical of Adria. You're not an, uh, an unqualified fan. I, I think he's an astonishing show. Like everybody else says, he, I mean, his ideas are really interesting and the people who are imitating him are not nearly as interesting as he is. Mm -hmm. But there's this thing about Adria that is totally against the idea of nourishment, against the idea of a meal as a meal, against order. What, I mean, his, the, the major commandment in his kitchen <coughs> is that you can't repeat, never repeat, never repeat. And <coughs> there are, some, sometimes I like to, to bring up the example of this dish that he was serving in his last year. I, I don't know if you had this one, but it was essentially this volleyball. Mm -hmm. it, he brings it out, it's this volleyball on a plate. Uh, it had been made from um, gorgonzola cheese that had been hydrated, I assume. I assume there was probably some kind of plasticizer <laughs> introduced to it. It was spread on the outside of a kid's balloon. 
um, blasted with liquid nitrogen, at which point the balloon was popped and the rubber withdrawn, mm -hmm. and what you're left with is this cheese volleyball. In Essence place. of, right. <laughs> and you know, I think when they asked me, do you have any allergies, I said athletic equipment. And so they never, <laughs> brought that, they never brought that out to me. Very good. <laughs> And so you, you break off a piece of this volleyball and you, and, and you, you eat it. And, you know, it, it, it's good. It, it melts. Tasty it, volleyball. It, it, it tastes like cheese. It's, you have experienced cheese in a way that you never would have experienced cheese before. And never would want to again. In the yeah. <laughs> but, and, and the, but, there, there's the, but you don't need to again. Right. You, I mean, once you've had a cheese volleyball, it's not like they're going to put cheese volleyballs in banquet hungry man dinners. Right. I mean, it's just it's it's not going to catch on. Right. No, you're not going to bring you bring it. <laughs> um, but the thing, it's <clears throat> it's realistically, if he just given you a piece of cheese, you would have eaten it and it would have tasted better. Yeah. Um, that everything that was introduced by um, in, involving this complicated process in it was to make it more amusing, perhaps, or to make it fit into a meal in a certain mm -hmm. way, or to contrast with, I, I guess, something I mentioned a couple minutes ago, which was that he'd found a way to essentially plasticize olive oil to make it so it was like a very thin <coughs> sheet, almost, Shellac, almost like sort of, yeah. yeah. Um, but really, olive oil tastes good as oil, yeah. and cheese tastes good as cheese. And I'm not saying that it, he wasn't making a point, though I don't know what the point was, to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to present it in that way, but I'm not sure it had... It was, it was an art point. I don't think it had anything to do with cuisine. Well, it's fascinating you make that distinction. Oh, by the way, does everybody, just to be lucid, everyone knows we're talking about Ferran Adria, who was the great Spanish or Barcelona chef mm -hmm. who ran El Bulli for many years and is in the process of turning it into a foundation, and I think can fairly be said to be the most influential chef of the past 20 years or so, would you, yeah, would you not agree? Yeah, you could say that. Inventor of molecular cuisine. I, what you're describing in this funny way, Jonathan, is the very thing I sort of <coughs> admired about it, and that I don't think his, many of his acolytes in America understand it all, and that is it was essentially a magic show. Right. It was, and it, its roots were not so much in food almost as they were in the circus and magic and spectacle. And I happen to love uh, magic. It's always been one of my uh, dreams is to get to the Magic Castle here in L.A., where my friend Jamie Ian Swiss, who I wrote mm -hmm. a profile of once, the great card magician, works. And uh, ma magic is something similar about it because mm -hmm. you know it's a trick. That is, they do something astonishing, and you know it's not magic. They did it <laughs> some way, right? Yeah. And if you have, keep that element of skepticism, it can be quite dull and sort of seem sort of pointless. But what I liked about and similarly with Audrey yeah. say, I, I like olive oil. I prefer it from the, mm -hmm. a good bottle to actually having it presented as a shellac on uh, a volleyball. But the very fact <laughs> of doing it uh, fascinates me. And the experience of pleasure, again, to come back to the, to the fundamental uh, issue, I think is quite, uh, is quite stirring. It's not something I would do more than once a lifetime or, mm -hmm. or maybe once every five years if one could, uh, or could afford it or could get in. But I, did f I, I thought, okay, this takes the idea of uh, the restaurant as theater, the restaurant right. as entertainment, the restaurant as magic show, mm -hmm. about as far as it could go. And what strikes me about so many, and again, this is a tribute, I suppose, to the American appetite for both, uh, for earnestness, is that m a lot of it that ha you experience in America is so churchy in feeling, rather than being essentially devoted to this idea of spectacle and fun and surprise, it tends to be devoted in a terribly diagrammatic way to uh, enlisting you in the cult of the 36-course dinner, which we, I, you know, I find mm -hmm. to be, you know, we ta I talked about what I thought was the positive contribution of foodieism mm -hmm. to American culture, that is being unashamed of pleasure. For me, the negative side of it is uh, the, the replacement of conversation by sensation. That is, that the reason we really go, we care about food, from, mm -hmm. is because it is the ultimate provocateur of human exchanges, of human conversation. Mm -hmm. We can get to know each other a little bit in an occasion like this, but it's a little unnatural. We right. had a chance to go out for dinner afterwards, then we would really talk. Then we could really <coughs> swap stories, we could mm -hmm. really share things. That's what, the, that's what food does 
like nothing else, like rituals of food do like nothing else. And it seems to me that lots of, of Audrey's imitators in America, and a lot of the cult of Audrey in America, does replace conversation with sensation. All you do is you sit there and wait for the next uh, course where you have to distinguish between the pink volcanic mm -hmm. salt and the black basalt salt. Yeah. And finally, it's salt. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's finally the, the, the sensory discriminations mm -hmm. you're being asked to make aren't worth the inhibition on social intercourse that you're, that's being forced on you. That all of the vectors point inward towards the plate. And for me, the, the astonishing thing, and it is the part of me that's reactionary and still loves mm -hmm. the food culture of France, is that really in France, the vectors still tend to point outwards towards the company, towards the room, towards the experience at the end of a good meal. That you rarely, at least I rarely walk away from a really wonderful meal in a good place in Paris, not talking about, you know, top places without feeling. That was a wonderful evening. I am a fuller human being at the end of that evening than I was at the beginning of it, fuller in every sense. But also, but unless that, wow, that chef just dazzled me with uh, his ability to make sensory distinctions that I didn't know I could make. <laughs> uh, the, a, a friend of mine went to... Um a uh, the, you know the re the restaurant Arpege, <laughs> so, uh, a, a decade ago it was Arpege. before he became a born again uh, vegetarian. vegetarian and started serving you know three hundred dollar carrots. Right. Um, <laughs> that was on. A, I think that was in Restaurant Week. That was discount <laughs> night when the carrots were three hundred dollars. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> you know you know she was an American an editor at Gourmet went with her wife and I guess another <coughs> couple. And they'd gone to our page and they'd had a tasting menu, which, as you know, is like, you know, long and involved. And he's, he's a wonderful chef. The food's good. And they'd, you know, they, they'd, they'd had, they had their courses and they had their dessert and they had the cheese and they had the, you know, the, the little chocolate things. And then the meal started again. <laughs> they were brought out the, next the, the first course. Right. And then they were brought out the same second course. And they were brought out the third course. And they were like... Is there a mistake what? here? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we just... We just and, and, and the waiter looked at him and said, uh, no, 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 but the second service. <laughs> and so they went through almost all the meal again. And they couldn't figure it out. And I, it dawned on them later that the chef had looked and like seen them... You know, laughing and enjoying themselves and and drinking and I thought we'll put an end to that. <laughs> he he had determined that they were paying insufficient attention to the food. Huh. huh. <laughs> so they were damn well <laughs> going to register what he was cooking that night. I, that's an amazing story. I didn't. You know, I worked in the kitchen at Larpege um, before. In its early when I say work, they mm -hmm. tolerated my presence. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, chopping onions, doing it. It was an education for me because Passard is a genius, really. He can, mm -hmm. He's a wonderful, wonderful cook. And did everything as he said, sur le plaque on the uh, thing. And one of the things that was interesting about it, it comes, you know, people now are talking about, I think, this rather uh, foolish business about French parenting and all of that. Mm -hmm. But the brutality of that kitchen, in other words, it was not a nice place to be because there was no tolerance for failure at all. And I remember Passard at one point, they were doing pigeons, and he mm -hmm. had the plate of pigeons, and he said to the poor kid who was doing the pigeons on the line. He said, mm -hmm. uh, who taught you to do this? And the kid said, you did, sir. He said, no, no, I didn't teach you to do this. Who taught you to do this? Mm -hmm. He said, uh, you did, sir. Nope, I never taught you to do this. And it was like that until the poor kid would finally say, no, that has nothing to do with what you taught me, sir. I messed it, you know, I, yeah. I messed it up. And I remember thinking, on the one hand, you could never do that in an American, in an American kitchen, I don't think. And on the one hand, it kept a very high standard. Everybody was terrified of making a mistake. At the same time, it created the conditions that led to the French Revolution and, mm -hmm. and, the, <laughs> and the reign of terror at the, at the same time. But Passard, I have a chapter about Passard, or half mm -hmm. about Passard in this book. And uh, what was so interesting about it is that for Passard, the move towards, uh, he hates the word vegetarian. Right. Hates, hates, hates the word vegetarian. Cuisine végétale is what he mm -hmm. chooses to call it. Was, had a very um, minor ethical dimension. Mm -hmm. This again, a very, you know, talking about foodie culture in America. The move towards vegetarianism in this country, towards cuisine végétale, mm -hmm. is largely ethically driven. And for Passard, it was almost entirely aesthetically driven. That is, that there was this part of the empire of food 
vegetables that had always been pushed off to the side of the plate and no one had ever done, and there was room for a genius to work his magic on what had previously been, been denigrated, side yeah. dishes. And he considered venison a vegetable. I mean, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And he could, so now he could do this, and he could mm-hmm. bring it to center, but the, the ethical component very, played a very small role in the way he chose to present it. And there was even an element of parody, it, I, I thought it was parody, the way he would do it, because you would have in one of these, you mm-hmm. know, 15-course uh, or 20-course <coughs> meals, they would bring out uh, a, you didn't know what the big course mm-hmm. was going to be. And under a silver bell, there'd be a uh, uh, salt-crusted something that looked exactly like a gigot or a rack of, and you didn't know what it was. And they'd break the crust very solemnly, and it would open up, and it was a roasted beet, great big giant beet, right? And then the, the second waiter comes over and slices the beet, and mm-hmm. he pours the beet juices over the beet. <laughs> so it's an absolute kind of parody of the, treat, the traditional treatment of you know, the, the roast that you would do under the, the salt crust, only it was your beet. And, and, and now I think it's actually the point where it's not particularly parody anymore. I mean, no, no, it's, it's I, mean, I mean, we, we, you know, again, we were, ta- we were talking about Noma when, when he serves that carrot that I know, I know you have, yeah. with that is a, it's a carrot that has been in the ground for two or three years. And when it pulls out, it's, it's, it's gigantic, it's woody. It's, it's covered with little tubers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's completely inedible. In, <laughs> unless you cook it in a special way for two days. Right. At which point it becomes extraordinary. I mean, it's like any other carrot you've seen. But when he serves that carrot as Let's face it, the centerpiece of this mm-hmm. like, gigantic Like Bessard's beat, right. It's not parody at all. I mean, he's serving that carrot because that carrot is the center of things. Well, you know, but in a way, the, your first response when someone tells you, tonight our main mm-hmm. course will be a six-year-old carrot, <laughs> the appropriate response is, no, it won't be a six-year-old carrot. No, I do, that's not what my main course is going to yeah. be. And yet, he makes, you, he makes a very convincing case for the old carrot. Because, and, mm-hmm. and, and not just foolishly, because, you know, it's the, the theory is, is that the old carrot has got its sugars so kind of compressed mm-hmm. into it by now because it's lost all of its starch and it's nothing but sugar locked in there. And if you braise it long enough, all of this mm-hmm. kind of, it's true. It's true. So he, he makes his case. But a certain, I guess that's, you know, we're talking about, you know, coming back to our central subject, is foodie culture any good? There's an element of absurdity in that stuff. There's an element of, of absurdity in grown men tasting six-year-old carrots. And I recognize that, <laughs> that, that element in it, too. Um, I guess, how would you defend that, uh, the, the element of manifest absurdity in lots of the things that you have to write about, that I choose to write about? Um, well, I mean, one thing is it's obviously theater. And another thing, it doesn't necessarily manifest itself in, in that carrot, although you look, for example, in California, you have uh, Daniel Patterson at Qua, I mean, serves as the centerpiece of most of his meals, like a, a carrot that has been braised in hay, which means you're combining both of the major horse food groups. In the <laughs> <laughs> uh, that... Um, that, that, that you, you have the, the things that are being done at, say, uh, Manresa, which is right. in, in the south of San Francisco, where it is attached at the hip to this garden close right. to the restaurant, and the chef probably spends as much of his day in the garden as right. he does in the restaurant. It's that sort of symbiotic, that symbiosis thing, that it's very hard to tell where the garden ends and the kitchen begins. Right. And... Again, the basic unit of consumption there is a, you know, whatever, $168... Um, Opportunity 12. to graze. Yes. <laughs> to, to graze in a pasture. And to, I, I feel that if you're being asked to graze in a pasture and eat horse food, one should pay as a horse would pay, actually. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that would mean that you haul the delivery truck for the next... Yes, week. exactly. <laughs> That's right. No, exactly. But I, don't you think, you know... For me, the, and one of the things that's tricky about articulating mm-hmm. the pleasure that we take in, right. in food is exactly that. If you don't have some kind of ironic detachment from it, you can't write about it properly. You can't enjoy it properly because there is an element, there's a built-in element of absurdity in 
elaborating something that you have to do in any case. Mm -hmm. In other words, I remember when we took our family once to a nice place in France, and we were all felling about how great it was, and our, our then eight-year-old daughter said, and you know what? Tomorrow we'll all be hungry again. And, that's, <laughs> and in lots of ways, that's the last line of every meal you ever eat is, and tomorrow we'll all be hungry again, in, in a way that, that separates it from other kinds of artistic expression. When you go to, I don't know, you know, the Ring saga, at the end of it, you don't say, and tomorrow we'll all want to see Wagner again, because you won't. <laughs> you won't want to see Wagner again. You won't want to listen to it again. You'll be glad to put it off for another, another five years, but we will all be hungry again tomorrow. <clears throat> so that's part of the mm -hmm. commonality of it. But, but it's, it's interesting you bring up <coughs> Wagner, because... Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry, no, Wagner doesn't really have much to carrots, but you give me, to do with carrots, but give me a minute. Um, that when you go to a ring cycle, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's for extremely long operas, it's usually extremely expensive, it's, it's, it's over the course of a week, more mm -hmm. or less. You see the same people every night in the same seats, and in, in, if you're going and you're seeing all for Operas of the Ring, it, um, there's a kind of dedication that's manifest right. there. And, at, you know, the, you know, Die Valkyrie is like you go in there, but by the time, you know, I mean, Das Rheingold, you look, you look around, you don't necessarily, by the second one, you know, Die Valkyrie comes around, you recognize the same faces, you recognize the people who are sitting and looking at scores, you, uh, you recognize... Um, <coughs> The, the, the same person with the extremely long beard and the jacket that hasn't been washed since September. Um, and then by the Siegfried comes along, it's like you, it's, it becomes, you, you start to talk to people and you start to become almost friends with people. Mm -hmm. And there's this, this cult that has arisen. It's people that are really into this thing happening at this moment in this very yeah, particular right. way. And by the time, you know, by the end of the first act of, you know, God or Damn Wrong, when everybody is sort of like melted in their chair at the, um, at, at the sight of, you know, all, all those singing gods, um, it, you've become part of like, you know, a, a, a miniature society. Mm -hmm. And you, be, you become a Wagnerian. Even if you hadn't been a Wagnerian right, before, right. even if you hate Wagner, you are at that moment of Wagnerian experiencing those things. Absolutely. And food is very much capable. In fact, it, it's tending to, these days, divide people into like, really specific tribes. And really specific tribes are, are obsessive about really specific things. Mm -hmm. So to use a, um, the cult of innards, for yep. example. I mean, it's, it, there, there was a long time in the, in the, in the you know, 80s, 90s, aughts, that it was pretty rare to see anything more than, say, like sweetbread. Kidney, maybe. Kidney. Yeah. And now people are gung-ho about eating every single possible bit of awful edible the, part right. of the animal. Mm -hmm. I, I was at a restaurant the other night that not only specialized intestines, but had like, you know, seven or eight different kinds of intestines that you could have. Tasting menu of, of yeah. guts. <laughs> right. and the, I, I mean, I mean, I mean you, you almost thought that there should be some sort of... Uh, you know, anatomical chart up on the <laughs> wall, so you re realize, you know, just how close you were, like, inching to the rectum of, <laughs> of the cow. It's sort of like the old terrorist alerts to be graded by <laughs> developing colors, right? You re exactly. You're right, red, flashing, you are right there now at the, <laughs> at, at the anus. Yeah, it's just like, you know, I, you know, and it becomes almost like a contest. You throw down, you know how you know how many how many animals have you eaten? Yeah, the it's, it's, it's you know that what's that restaurant called Hannibal's? I think or something. Um, <laughs> I think that well, you know. But what's interesting, but for me about that, Jonathan, about the whole cult of innards, and it's one of the you know it's something that I, I go on about, I guess, at too great length in a way, yeah. is 
the way that all of our mouth tastes instantly become moral tastes. Mm. So Fergus Henderson, the chef in London, right. who I think is as responsible for this cult as any... Oh, uh, yeah, he's definitely as, the beginning. As, as anyone. You know, this is a guy who wrote that wonderful... runs a restaurant called St. John in <clears throat> London, wrote a wonderful book called The Whole Beast. And it's Fergus's position that you can't be an honest carnivore if you're not prepared to eat the whole of the beast that's put before you. In other words, if you're going to eat mm -hmm. the filet of the pig or the the filet of the cow or whatever, then you have to make a commitment to eat the hooves and the ears and the nose and the mouth and the every right, mm -hmm. the innards and the spleen and the heart and the lungs and everything else because otherwise you're just uh, a predator of a kind. You're not an, an ethical eater. You're just uh, choosing one thing and it's what he calls contemptuously pink and plastic. Pink and plastic meaning meat wrapped up mm -hmm. in the supermarket is the worst thing a person can eat, whereas digging yourself wholly into the blood and guts of the animal puts you in a position of, of ethical equality with the animal you've slaughtered. Mm -hmm. It's a slightly kind of D.H. Lawrence position on, on mm -hmm. eating, but, it's, <laughs> but he holds it very... Uh, uh, and what fascinates me about it is exactly that's the, um, that it isn't for him just a question of taste, though he insists that these things are delicious, mm -hmm. and indeed they are. I should add that whenever we're in London, I get to eat at St. John. My wife waits on the sidewalk and pickets uh, and <laughs> <laughs> um, But uh, that he made that not just into a kind of, oh, I dare you sort of taste, but into a complete and very persuasive kind of ethical position, which in a weird and almost perverse way is closer to vegetarianism in a way than, than uh, a lot of vegetarians are in the sense that what it says is, if you we're going to kill animals, if we're going to slaughter mm -hmm. animals for our food, then we have to respect those animals. Then we have to respect the total, the totality of the system. And we can't, what the, the destructive part of being a carnivore is raising animals in order to eat one chunk of their side and treating them otherwise contemptuously, unethically in that way. So it fascinates mm -hmm. me that, that that whole thing, as you say, of, of innards, which has become so essential to contemporary mm -hmm. taste, actually has a kind of ethical uh, fulcrum. That, that, that threw it at us. It, it does. I mean, you're, you're, <coughs> you're, you're honoring the life of the, of, of the animal <coughs> you're eating right. and, and the idea, and you're very much absorbing the idea that you know, this, is, this is an animal that died so that you can nourish yourself <coughs> and you can live. And the idea of like, something dies, dying so that you can live is like the, I mean, that's the central metaphor in Western civilization, right? Yeah, from, from the beginning. It's, you know, it's, it's all of Hemingway is about, you know, that's mm -hmm. why you do it. But now I have a question for you, Jonathan. Sure. It, one of the things that struck, strikes me, and I wonder if you see it as true or not true, is that it's puzzling me. You talk about um, tribal allegiances right. in contemporary eating. Um, and I think that that's true, but one of the things that's puzzling to me sometimes is that we sort of have basically have two big wings of sort of fashionable food, and obviously this goes without saying that the overwhelming <coughs> majority of mm -hmm. people are eating fast food or other things, and that's a whole yeah. other set of issues which are well worth pursuing, but... but Let's just stick with this for a moment. And that is that there's everything that's involved with the slow food movement, with the Alice Waters' various movements in the, in, you know, in mm -hmm. the States, which have to do exactly with mm -hmm. sincerity, the local, the organic, the slow-cooked, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you have Thomas Keller and the kind of school of Audrey. You have the molecular people, right? Who in lots of ways are working in a completely opposite direction because they, they, it's not about... Uh, uh, authenticity, sincerity, minimal intervention between the garden as you know as with your garden. Right. It's about maximal intervention. It's about transformation. It's about magic. It's about technology, in large part, because it involves technological transformations. But here's the weird thing: is I don't see when I read through food literature or I look through the you know more uh, intelligent food magazines mm -hmm. huge headbutting quarrels among those two wings. On the contrary, they seem to kind of coexist. Well, because um, I mean, when it comes down to it, the uh, the the chefs, and this is these are only the two conflicting things at probably the very highest levels of cuisine. Right. But the, um, they almost agree in a certain way. I mean, when you go to, I'm sorry to keep bringing up Noma because it just has so many of the good mm -hmm. examples that you go there in a certain time of year, and um, one of the things they bring out is this jar, and there's crushed ice in it. Uh, this mason jar, and you open the lid of the mason jar, and on the crushed ice is this tiny, transparent prawn that is apparently the 
really, really the, the first sign that winter is over is that these little these shrimp prim- they start to show up in right. this one particular fjord. I mean, it's, it's right. something that, you know, they've, they've known in Denmark forever. The, the fjord might be in Sweden. Um, <coughs> I mean, Copenhagen and Sweden are like uh, L.A. and Orange County. Right. I mean, they're yeah. like, it's there, right? They're right next to each other. And... Um, uh, on one hand, he's somebody on the very like, you know, you would think of them in the in the molecular school, but you you eat this thing. There's the sweetness to it, and it's alive and it expires on your tongue. And again, there's the whole like um, respecting the the life that's dying, so that you can like experience pleasure. And so, so it's that, so it has sort of a theatrical element to it that would mm-hmm. be very much of the, um, the north of the Spain, modern, modern school. School. Yeah. Right. but on the other hand it's also ingredient authentic right. it's authentic yeah. you don't get more slow food than this incredibly rare prawn that you only eat one week out of a year mm-hmm. in one specific region that when, when we're talking about the carrots, on the one hand, the people who tend to serve the carrots are the people who have you know, all the techniques and the rotovaps and, mm-hmm. the, and, and, the, and the Paco Jets and the you know, 17 kinds of emulsifiers in their kitchen, but they're also obsessive about you know, this one beat that is really at its uh, proper best at this one very specific two thirty a.m. on yeah. the, on a January morning when when yeah, yeah. only if there's a full moon yeah right. um, <clears throat> so in a way they're the same thing when you're that obsessed with uh, particulars it doesn't become this particular or that particular yeah. it becomes the I, you know I think that's right cause, and one of the ways I tried to articulate it is that it occurred to me in China th- in thinking about this that. <coughs> Excuse me. Really, they're both, in, and also in large part, about time. They're demanding your attention right. to the things that you're eating. And you know, 200 years ago, uh, the single scarcest and most valuable thing mm-hmm. on your plate was protein, and right. because that was very hard to get and very expensive. And so many uh, cuisines uh, began in the scarcity of protein mm-hmm. and tried to try. You know, that's why we we crumble meat over our pasta because it's hard to find. And now, in a time when for good or ill, and, and as ill as good, in some ways, protein is abundant or, or mm-hmm. is, can be made to seem abundant. Um, time is the single most valuable thing on your plate. That's the single mm-hmm. biggest commitment. That's the single biggest cost, in a sense, that you mm-hmm. or I are paying, is we're going to give four hours or five hours to mm-hmm. uh, a meal or even less than that. I mean, so many of my friends who run restaurants in New York say that it's almost impossible to get people to sit still for a two-hour meal mm-hmm. anymore, that that becomes increasingly increasingly difficult. So in that sense, both the slow food people, declaredly, and mm. the molecular people are asking for your time more than they're asking, and for your money, mm. but <laughs> for your time. But what you're paying for is that is the time, the exchange of time that you're, you're engaged in with them. And I think that that may be, it's another way of saying the same thing about the, the, uh, you know, the, the engagement with the, uh, with the particular. I'm, I'm bound to say, I've never been to Noma, this great restaurant in Copenhagen, mm. but if you're a kind of... Uh, uh, a cynic about such things. It is interesting that it is rated, it is considered the best restaurant in the world because it combines uh, scarcity, it's very, you know, right. it's hard, and um, uh, technological advancement. It's, it's complicated. And you have to go all the way to Copenhagen to eat there, right? right. So anybody who's had the experience has got, is three up mm-hmm. on anybody who, who has not. Yeah. <clears throat> But there's also that sense that they're doing something that I, that I know concerns you a great deal, is that when you go there, there is, as I've seen nowhere else, there is a narrative on a plate. Mm-hmm. There is an order that you eat things. The, food that you're, the foods that you're eating are telling a story that is not necessarily about themselves. Mm-hmm. Or maybe about themselves. It, de- it no, depends on the I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think yeah. that is one of the things that draws us to food. It's exactly that way that not only do our mouth tastes become moral tastes, so eating yeah. the, the, the intestines becomes a statement about mm-hmm. the cycles of life, but also that food is an, is, can, be, can tell stories in that way and that we go to it for that, telling stories about the place you're at, mm-hmm. about, the, about history, tell stories about continuity. 
one of the things that was moving for me was that this book begins with a, a letter that a, a French resistor wrote in the last mm -hmm. hours of his life where he just talks about food. Mm -hmm. says, writes his last letter to his parents and says, questions of food have taken on great importance. And he asks them to send the menu of uh, an inn, an auberge, to mm -hmm. his mistress just before the Germans shoot him. And I got curious, maybe that inn was still in existence, called the Auberge de Quatre Pavés de Roi. Mm -hmm. And God damn it, it is. Mm -hmm. About an hour outside Paris, uh, near Versailles, and we went out there, and it's the same damn place, serving the same damn food, right? Mm -hmm. And what would another, in another context would have seemed like, oh dear, it's another uh, old-fashioned French restaurant that's serving uh, uh, steak au poivre and, uh, uh, you know... Uh, Sorbet with uh, Calvados and so on, sure. became incredibly moving because it was all a story about continuity, that 1940 to 2010 was continuous. It was a continuous piece of history. And when we explained why we were there to the woman who runs it, she said, oh yes, she said, well we were a mile further west until they built the expressway and mm -hmm. then we moved the whole thing over mm -hmm. and showed us pictures of the places that had been in the 30s and 40s. And not a famous place, totally yeah. unknown place. But that was a story about continuity being told in terms of a series of plates. Um, that's, I think, one of the things that we go to, uh, we go to, to food for. As much as we go for, and go to, that's, if there's meaning of in food, meaning right. in food. I think that's a, that's a large part of it. And one of the things that's difficult to do is to sort out for all of us what's merely uh, sentimental. What mm -hmm. are the things that, we, that we've sort of learned to like because they remind us of our moms, not that there's anything wrong mm -hmm. with that, uh, mm -hmm. and what are the things that are, we want to uh, make part of our own lives. And thus, you know, those are the, you know, the, the endlessly tricky negotiations of family life are almost all played out, or often are played out, in terms of what kids reject and what kids accept. Um, and I think that's a, uh, to come back to our mm -hmm. first premise, to the degree that foodie culture, with all of its absurdities and all mm -hmm. of its tribalism and all of the, the, uh, the affectations mm -hmm. that it, it promotes and accepts, uh, to the degree that it makes us acutely aware that of those continuities, of, mm -hmm. of that place. You know, I, I became aware, talking about the table comes first, you know, think of the dining table, but really it's the kitchen table is the place, is the real treaty table of contemporary mm -hmm. life. You know, that's the kitchen table at midnight when I'm making scrambled eggs or something for the kids or sure. rice and beans, that were not just me, but millions of people. That's when you get the news, Dad, you know, I think I'm not going to go to college. <laughs> You're not going to go to college? No, I thought I would just like, you know, I'll have my guitar and I'll just go like busk in various places for a couple <laughs> of years. Uh-huh, okay, that's one way of looking at it. Or, you know, Dad, I'm gay, whatever the thing is yeah. you're being told, that happens more often at the kitchen table over those kinds of moments than I think anywhere else. Thanks very much. <laughs> I, 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 I think that's all the time, all we have time for. That was a beautiful statement, and I think it's being opened up to questions. Great. I wondered if you guys could talk a little bit more about uh, the role of eating <laughs> in, in culture and, and, and you know, where, where it's sort of taking us, because it seems to me there's, there's some class and, and other issues that are also really um, implied and embedded in a lot of the conversation that, that uh, you guys were having tonight. Most of the people here are probably not going to go to Noma uh, or haven't gone to El Bulli and probably won't even go to Arpege to eat the uh, carrot. Um, the beet, the beet. The beet, sorry, the beet. Um, Let's keep our aging vegetables straight. <laughs> <laughs> Hakim the Beat, isn't he a basketball player? Never yes, mind. Exactly. Uh, good luck. The, um, obviously, food and culture uh, manifests itself, manifest itself in like a, a million different ways. And I mean, yeah, the, the one that I tend to write about the most, or I have tended to write about the most, is the, um, the idea of food as place, and especially the idea of transplanted food as place, so that a, um, you know, a, re a restaurateur in Koreatown will be in like a, a little place in a shopping center, his sign will be untranslated, the menu will be untranslated, you know, Mr. Kim will come in on Thursday, every Thursday afternoon to eat this, um, 
you know, this cadro soup that his mom used to make, and the person there makes it exactly the way that he made it, and he's happy, and there's that sense of community, and the idea that we as perhaps non-Koreans, or at least like non-Mr. Kim can go there, we can eat, you know, we can eat the uh, same altang, and we can experience exactly the same soup that has all these other connotations to somebody that it doesn't necessarily have to us. So, it's, so the aesthetics are borrowed aesthetics, but they're, but they're completely wonderful. They become personal to us in different ways than they were intended. So there's, it, I mean, the, the resonance is different, but perhaps the intent is the same. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, 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 there's a question I think about a lot, and I try and ex explain my feelings about it if I think about a, a related or another art form. Mm -hmm. Think about poetry. You know, the great Zimborska, great Polish poet, I think was the greatest poet of the last 50 years, died I agree. Last, last week. And uh, I wrote an elegy for her. And it seems to me, if, you know, when people say, how can you talk about Adria and mm -hmm. Noma when uh, so many people are obese and so on. It's a little bit like saying, how can you talk about poetry when we have a, a literacy crisis? It's absolutely true we have a literacy crisis and it's a huge problem and we need to work on, on those things and one tries to do it, but that's not a barrier to talking about uh, Zimborska, Zimborska's poetry. It's all the more reason to try and make for a more, a more literate society. Having done that, then the next question you ask is, okay, but isn't there a kind of poetry, in effect the kind of poetry Jonathan writes about so well, that isn't high poetry, that is the poetry of the street. Isn't there a place for rap in your description of the world of poetry? And the answer is yes, absolutely. There's no question about that. That's part of the, one of the things that enriches it. But I don't think there's a built-in conflict between talking about the kind of most self-conscious high expression of a common pursuit and, uh, trying, to, and trying to broaden people's opportunities for pleasure and recognizing that there's already in place a very, very rich culture of, of a very rich and sophisticated kind of indigenous culture of food or of language, which we get educated by when we go out into the world. Yeah, it, I mean, just, just because there's a, and I mean, just because it's possible to eat cuisine that's thought of on that level and planned on that level doesn't mean that that incredibly great bowl of Thai noodles you're going to eat tomorrow night is any less a, is a great bowl right. of noodles. Yeah. Is a lesser it, 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 does, it doesn't take away from it yeah. at all. No, I think that's right. I, I... You, you mentioned earlier in the conversation about going out and really bonding over a meal much more than you would otherwise. I'm just curious, uh, Jonathan, what, would you, uh, what place would you take him to to do that bonding on a low cuisine <coughs> basis and on a haute cuisine basis? A good question, Jonathan. I'm looking, this, is, this is the first question which I actually I, I think I may benefit from. In the... I know this is probably the answer you expect, but, there's, but, but I've always had you know, great conversations and great times at, uh, at Jet Lada, for example. I mean, the, the, the food is such that it engages you in every single possible way. It's possible for food to engage you, but... You, you, you always end up talking. The fact that the food is different from anything that you may have ever had and has some jolting flavors to it only <coughs> helps to uh, enliven things, to push things along. I mean, the way that you don't necessarily want to go to a dinner party and eat corn dogs. Uh, <laughs> and... You know, L.A. has... I, I stand firmly behind my statement that L.A. is possibly the greatest city in the world. Oak cuisine isn't necessarily our <coughs> strong point, but, uh, you, know, if, you know, if Zokal has the budget, I'll be happy to take you <laughs> to Uruasawa for $1,000 sushi. Yeah. They, they, they I think you would quite enjoy it. They assured me that they did have that budget. Other one when they, oh, good. that's why they. But they did make me take a Conestoga wagon here to make up for it. So. I heard a couple of days ago on the radio something about uh, studies showing a relationship between music, listening to music, and and how one experiences food, uh, uh, the or what food tastes like to us. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, and I wonder if you've had any personal experiences uh, listening to certain music when you're eating something. I wonder if you 
you know, take an iPod with you to the restaurant. Or <laughs> I think one of the things that Jonathan and I have in common is that we both have slightly disreputable pasts as uh, lovers of rock, though Jonathan is younger than I am mm -hmm. and therefore is a grungeite, and mm -hmm. I am old enough to have actually seen Jimi Hendrix perform live mm -hmm. in the, at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, I spend the whole day with very loud rock music of the early 70s, the kind of music you want to have banished from the radio now, you know, Layla and uh, <laughs> Stairway to Heaven and those kinds of things playing all the time. So I tend not to have associate music with eating. It's one of the, the most touching instance of a, of a food music connection that I ever heard is that there's a wonderful, very fancy and, and very good uh, restaurant run by the Roca brothers um, mm -hmm. in uh, not far from El Bulli. It sort of used to be the kind of lesser El Bulli and now is probably the greater one. And the middle brother, uh, Jorge, uh, is the sommelier, is the guy who runs the wines. And he believes deeply that the longevity of wine depends on the music that the wine is listening to in its cellar all day. So they play, they play Bach for the champagnes all day because that involves structure and clarity. And they play Schubert for the burgundies all day because that involves mm -hmm. mellow you know, uh, romance. Mm -hmm. And then they play, you know, the local kind of flamenco music for the Riojas because that's what they're accustomed <laughs> to hearing. And when he told me this, I thought, oh, this is like, you know, can you go wash the carbon paper, right? This is right. like the joke they play on the visiting American journals. Mm -hmm. Not a bit. They're playing that music 24 hours a day and deeply believes, and it sounds nutty, and then you think, why not? You know, it's like, you know, actually what I do think about that, it's like <clears throat> one of the things that always puzzles me is, <coughs> biodynamic wine, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure all, many of you have heard about the biodynamic movement, some of which is just good common sense farming, but a lot of which is these weird kind of rituals attached to it. Uh, bearing the dunghill horn, cow's horn in the uh, corner of your lot on the full, full moon, moon. On the night of the full moon, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it has all this kind of twilight stuff uh, connected to it. And, but if you think about it, you know what's really going on there, it seems to me? It's that what, it, what does it mean you have to do? You have to take meticulous care. You have to pay mm. meticulous attention. And the rituals may be all meaningless, but it means you're totally devoted to the, the plot of land you're on. If you're uh, uh, Jorge Roca, you're totally engaged with the condition of every bottle in your cellar. So whether the champagne can actually hear Bach mm -hmm. or not, the, I would sooner entrust a cellar to somebody who thinks that the champagne can hear Bach <laughs> To someone who, who someone who does it, yeah. I, I'm not sure there though. That I've, I, I, I'm sure I'm sure you've had all the things like the the, the colorology thing where he's where yeah. they uh, the desserts aren't like vanilla or chocolate; they're green or right. orange. And there's 17 different like variations yeah. of the color green on the plate. Or uh, he's he's another one of those people who's probably spending too much time with. Perfumers, so yes. uh, so so you ha you're instructed to like eat this uh, lemon sorbet while um, sniffing this thing saturated with perfume that smells what like the fat lady was wearing next to you on the elevator <laughs> <laughs> that day. No, they go to Sephora a lot for you know for inspiration. In your profession, do you see? I guess, favorability or bias in, you know, when you're writing reviews and those that are actually following those practices, do you find, like, responsibility or do others in your profession find responsibility in highlighting those that are uh, moving towards the, the environmentally sound ways of farming and uh, biodynamics and, and all of that whole branch of um, the movement that's being looked upon now? Yeah, we, we, we were just talking earlier in the dressing room. This when I was, uh, I, I'm not going to name the names of restaurants because it would be unkind, but, um, <laughs> but when, I was at, when I was the restaurant critic at Gourmet in New York, uh, we did our first uh, farm-to-table issue that was um, basically devoted to the idea of sustainability. Uh, which is something I care about very much, and, and <laughs> if and I always, always, always will bring it out in the review wherever, wherever I find it. If you don't see it in a review, you can almost you can assume that it wasn't there. Um, but there's a restaurant. I was looking for a restaurant to review for this issue, and there was one restaurant really in New York that 
had impeccable six, sourcing and yes. And I'm not naming it because it was one of his very favorite <laughs> restaurants in the world. So, but uh, he did an amazing job of sourcing, especially uh, all local stuff. Not as nearly as easy in New York as no, it is here, as no. it is in California, where we have almost everything, almost all year. And he just didn't know what to do with it. I mean, it's, the, the food did kind of suck. He didn't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean in the way, even in the way that there's like one way you slice a tomato for juiciness and there's one way you slice a tomato for um, flavor. And he didn't, he didn't slice tomatoes right. He, mm. did, he never, uh, you know, braised his vegetables enough so they always had that sort of unpleasant raw edge to them that things were necessarily put together. It, it, it was a perfect restaurant except for... The food. The food. <laughs> 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 and you, you have to give him credit, and it's just he had, what, two and a half stars from the New York Times, right? Mm -hmm. And it's and everybody dutifully went there. And as he was saying earlier, you know, you you walk, you walk down the streets of Soho, and it's like there's you know there's the chef riding his bicycle down the street and waving, and it's, it 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 made you feel really good. It was like, perfect for the neighborhood. But um, yeah, you you have to be able to cook as well as the source, I guess. Well, I I the, I love that nameless place for for <laughs> unnameable reasons. So I will not go just. Uh, no, but let me just, just on, on the larger question know. about, about <laughs> that stuff, one of the points I try to make in this book is, is that I'm open to the argument. We, at one point, I was sufficiently a localist to do, a, we lived for a week not only on local food from the New York State Food Shed, but only on uh, food that had been grown or raised in the five boroughs of New York, which was a real challenge. But there are two working farms in New York City proper, one in Staten Island, one in Brooklyn, and uh, as I explained in the book, I had to arrange a hit on a chicken that had been raised just mm -hmm. for its eggs. But it was illicit. I felt like one of the Sopranos because I, I tried to get somebody to, to whack the chicken. But the, point, the lesson I learned from that is that there's a genuine and worthwhile argument about carbon miles, about the virtues of, of localism and sustainability. Mm -hmm. It's less of an argument in a place of abundance like California mm -hmm. than it is in a place like the, the northeast of the United States. Um, Lots of arguments you can make back and forth about whether or not you are wasting more energy raising lamb in New York State than you are bringing lamb in by jet from New Zealand and so on. The thing that I think is, uh, is certain is that the experience of putting a face on your food, the experience of recognizing that the things that we eat are, part, are not magically appearing in the supermarket but rise from the ground, are raised by particular farmers in particular methods, we went out to the, my, I took the kids, my kids, to um, uh, the farm in Brooklyn where they assured us that all of their manure was supplied by the Bronx Zoo and was really mm -hmm. elephant dung. I, again, I thought that it was an elaborate joke, but it turned out to be absolutely true and that you could actually taste in the eggplants they were raising the difference between Asian elephant dung and African elephant dung. <laughs> I thought that it's was a yes, exactly. <laughs> I thought that was a fabulous thing for my kids to absorb. I think it's a fabulous thing for any of us to absorb. The more that we humanize the food chain, the healthier we are as human beings. And I don't mean healthy just in the sense of our bodies, but I think healthier in our souls as well. So for me, with the question of localism and sustainability, even in a certain sense, the argument from pleasure and soulfulness is always going to be more powerful than the argument from uh, 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 necessity and, uh, and economics. Thank you.